welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode will be at tehpodcast.com slash teh21. We have three hosts today. I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer, coffee connoisseur, and corgi lover, uh, all behind askleo.com. And yes, I do manage to work in the corgis and the coffee into my Ask Leo work. Gary? I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at MacMost.com, where I post a whole bunch of Mac tutorials every week. And I also make game apps, mostly for iOS. Uh, and you can find those at clevermedia.com. I'm Kevin Savitz, creator of freeprintable.net and faxzero.com, where we just surpassed 17 million faxes sent. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of faxes. It's a lot of faxes for obsolete technology, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the, like, the number of faxes sent per year. You know, back in the day, you yeah. know, like 1990, it was popular, but I mean, I wonder if there's more sent now. I don't know. Probably not, but it was not measurable then. You know, when yeah. random offices with a fax machine with curling paper or whatever, there was no way to measure it. And now there sort of is. So yeah. uh, I'm sure it's on the, yeah, I'm sure it's uh, past its prime, but still pretty popular. Yeah. So what you been up to, Kevin? Uh, I've been uh, playing with Plato. That's, that was kind of what I, I did this week. Um, a buddy of mine launched a online service that is a, kind of a, it's a reboot of the Plato uh, uh, online service, which was born at the University of Illinois in the late 60s, early 70s. And it was a uh, online BBS sort of a network service thing, uh, which was designed for education. And uh, it ran on big old mainframes and was designed to be accessed from many different kinds of computers from the time. You could use a, a dedicated terminal. Uh, you could you know, use your Atari 800 computer or Apple II or whatever. Uh, it, it was a, kind of a multi-platform, multi-user, graphical uh, uh, service. It had um, uh, educational uh, lessons, multiplayer games, online chat, uh, forums and, and messaging systems, uh, touchscreen and screen sharing. And just, it, it was, I mean, for the time, it was absolutely amazing. And uh, he has re rebooted it so that uh, it is accessible to mere mortals. And he's made a, a beautiful uh, uh, version of, of this, this service that you can, anyone can access uh, using uh, uh, Windows or machine or Linux or Macintosh. Uh, and you get this, this little client called Pterm and you can point it at, at uh, the service and, and you can kind of see and really enjoy what uh, this technology of uh, this, this early network educational service was like. So I may have missed this, but is this a a rewrite or is it the original code? Or? It's the original code. Wow. Covered. Yeah. What did, what did it run on? Uh, that's an excellent question. And I think it was a control data something. Um, so he happened to find himself a CDC mainframe? Well, no, I, th I believe <laughs> it's running emulated now. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Uh, and that uh, there would be a CDC emulator also is kind of uh, my yeah. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean yeah, that was the that's the cool. system that I actually used um, when I first learned to program way back in the day. It was the first computer I ever used was a a CDC sixty four hundred mainframe. Um, mm. So yeah, I I understand the assembly language of that, for example, and that's uh, that's no small feat to. Uh, to throw together an emulator for it and then build a build this system on top of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, definitely a CDC machine, uh, although I don't know what model. Right. Um, yeah, so anyway, it was an amazing thing at the time. There was a book that came out last year about it, about the uh, Plato. Um, it was called The Friendly Orange Glow, and I put a link to that in the show notes. It's called The Friendly Orange Glow, The Untold Story of the Plato System and the Dawn of Cyberculture. I assume that was because the screens or something was orange. Yeah, the the original blue. terminals. Uh, yeah. If you were using the the terminal like at the University of Illinois, they uh, they were orange. Hmm, orange touchscreen. Um, yeah, apparently they were. So that's how it got it got the name back then. Friendly orange glow of the terminals. That's so very cool. good book, uh, and um, I'm having fun dabbling with this the service. Um, which is you know completely programmable. If you he uh, my buddy who made this Thomas, he's just like figured out how to use the kind of markup language sort of thing that it uses, and he's built like a backgammon game. And you can design graphics because it's fully graphical, and uh, you know he just kind of make 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 figuring out how it works on the, from the inside out. Anyway, anybody can play with it. Um, you can just go to irata.online. That's Atari backwards. Uh, I-R-A-T-A dot online. And uh, you can kind of learn about it, download the terminal uh, emulator and just run it on your, your Mac or PC. Or, you know, if you're really nutty like me, you can run it on your, your Atari 800 or your Apple II or whatever. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's might be the next level for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, my so week wasn't nearly as exciting. I didn't play with, with old computer systems. I was on the road this week. I was down visiting an assortment of acquaintances down in uh, Southern California. I attended a uh, a graduation for a friend of the family, a dear friend of the family who uh, just graduated her with her MBA from uh, Pepperdine. So I was out on the warm shores of Malibu for a little while um, on Saturday, which is significant only in that I left the rainy shores of Seattle. Um, Seattle has been uh, getting tons and tons and tons of rain up until I left, but I seem to have uh, successfully brought back some of the sunshine. But this week was kind of a buy for me. Hmm. Gary, but you? Yeah, and I've just been busy doing my normal work. The cribbage game I've been talking about the last couple episodes is now released as of this evening. Uh, it's Monday mm-hmm. evening, so there'll be a link to that. It's it's a free iOS game for iPhone and iPad. So that's the one where you play against uh, one of six artificially intelligent game-playing robots. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I've had some beta testers testing it out. and it seems to work pretty well, but we'll see how it works under fire of hundreds, hopefully thousands of players trying it in the next week. Um, so, so yeah, you can get that. And then just as I normally do, just move right on to the, to the next game. So working on something new. Um, can you give us a hint? Well, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not actually making a, like a game like that exists, like, you know, cribbage and all, I'm making a cribbage game. I'm making something new. I started out trying to make this idea I had for a word game. Um, 
uh, where you're trying to find letters, and and then somehow it morphed into a seafaring trading game. <laughs> it's uh, so, and it's still got word game elements in it. So it's kind of a weird one. It's one of these ones that is just hard to describe. And unfortunately, those games usually don't do well for me because nobody looks for them. You know, when you create an original game, there aren't people already searching for that original game because it didn't exist yet. Um, so putting it out there usually doesn't do too much, but just like uh, Charlie Brown kicking that football, um, I keep <laughs> I keep coming up with these game ideas and like you know trying them and and uh, you know at least I enjoy making them even if they kind of fall flat when they hit the app store. But if the as the game appears uh, uh, nears completion, I uh, I'll talk more about it and uh, let everybody know when it when it hits the uh, the store. Cool. But uh, this week, I really need to focus on, you know, this. I just launched a cribbage game. I got to tell people about it and post about it and get new people playing it and things like that. Uh, you know, the launch of the game. So, cool. Well, I will tell you that uh, while I was uh, on the plane, I mentioned before we started recording that I was having some Wi-Fi problems on the trip back. I entertained myself with the uh, an Android version, an Android um, cribbage. I'm starting to get a little better, but I'm looking forward to uh, you hopefully having critical mass to make what you're doing available on Android at some point. Uh, that's both a sign of success for you, and yes, I'd rather play your game than some stranger's game. So, yeah, yeah, I hope I hope so. I hope uh, hope I get to do uh, some more ports to Android because that'll mean uh, a successful game or two. Exactly. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a sign of success for you. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's just it's just worth well, much more worth it to me to develop and put something out on iOS um, because, uh, you know, I already have a bunch of iOS users that will try it out and things like that. And it just, historically, they they just do better than the Android games. So, um, but yeah, if like I can figure out, well, is 5% of what I'm doing on iOS good enough to port it to Android? If it is, then I'll port it to Android and get that 5% extra or whatever. (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah. Alrighty, well, on to this week's topics, and yes, we do have a Breach of the Week. Breach of the Week! Thank you. <laughs> sure, we don't want to record that and just sort of... What? It does in. it in a different octave every time. I think, so. <laughs> it's like, what octave will we have? One, one of our listeners uh, sent, sent a, 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 a thing, sent a little audio clip. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you didn't? I, I haven't heard that. Oh, no. Gonna... Send it to our, to our Twitter. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. They oh. took, took my voice and kind of tweaked it a little bit and ran it, ran it through autotune or something. <laughs> well, we, we may actually have to play with that because uh, I think you told earlier that you're not going to be here next week. So it's uh, true. Yeah. And yes. assuming there's a breach this week, which turns out to be a surprisingly likely assumption. Guys, uh, no, no breaches this week. Cause Kevin's going to be out of town. Be here. <laughs> yeah. Just we, keep, keep it together guys, please. <laughs> anyway, the one I stumbled across while I was um, actually out and about last week, um, I'm, I'm reading from a ZDNet article, uh, data firm leaks 48 million user profiles that scraped from Facebook, LinkedIn, and others. So basically what it was, um, this little data firm, which is actually very close to me here in the Seattle area, um, they built a bunch of personal profiles simply by combining the data that they were able to get uh, from sites and social networks like Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Zillow, among others, 
and again, without the user's knowledge or consent. Now, my assumption from that description is that this is all, quote unquote, public data. In other words, data that these individuals um, did not take uh, you know, an appropriate precautions to say, hey, this is private or should only be shared with friends, or it's basically stuff that they either offered up or, in the case of Zillow, I suspect, um, a lot of public record data. Uh, Zillow does a lot of what they're doing with real estate based on uh, publicly published information uh, from government agencies. So in that sense, I don't think there, you know, this aspect of it isn't really a breach, but I think it's a really good example of uh, how the information you either give or make public um, can be aggregated by people you completely don't expect to have, you know, to be out there aggregating your data and how these relationships between these various sites and services like Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Zillow um, can all be related to one another to actually provide or create a fairly sophisticated profile about each of us as individuals. So there's that question about, you know, this third party collecting data. Is it legit? Is it, are they violating anybody's terms of services? I don't know, but the fact is they were able to do it and it wasn't necessarily a breach as it was just making use of publicly available information. Making use of publicly available information of the week. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Oh. <laughs> um, and again, this isn't really a, a breach as much as it is uh, a, a serious oversight, but, um, and yes, I guess we'd call it the serious oversight of the week. The, um, um, What's been happening, so I'll back up a little bit. Amazon has what they have, has a service called Amazon Web Services. That's a series of or a set of cloud services for uh, basically just about anybody who wants to use them. I use their uh, data storage service called S3, Simple Storage Service, or they just call it S3, um, to store a lot of files, both my private backups, my encrypted data, but I actually also host a couple of random websites that way. And if you're ever looking at images on an Ask Leo site, for example, those images originally came from like some S3 storage. There's a lot of other services, everything from voice recognition to Alexa integration to God only knows what all. They've got an amazing um, collection of services. Over the past couple of, I'll say, months, what we've been hearing about are these cases where people place data into Amazon S3 without properly securing it. Hmm. So what, what that means is it's kind of like you upload a file and you, you think it's private. Your intent is that it be private. Your intent is that the access be controlled and only you or the people you give access to can actually access that file. In reality, because you didn't um, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's, the file is available or public to anybody who happens to stumble across it. And apparently, these 48 million user social profiles were, in fact, <laughs> visible in a public S3, what they call a bucket. Uh, that's their unit of storage that becomes public. And that's the thing that, that again, also... I wanted to highlight for people to help them understand what some of this is. This isn't a breach. It's not a, a case where some, uh, somebody with uh, malicious intent created access where there wasn't already access. This was simply a very, an apparently common security oversight where the people who are actually storing this data 
kind of forgot to lock the door. Mm. And that is something that is happening a lot. And what's frustrating from a user's perspective, because I'm, for example, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, and my house is on, you know, in Zillow. I know how to look it up. Um, my data may very well be in there. I had nothing to do with it, and I have no control over it. And the fact that this random third party managed to get their security wrong means I it's out there for, you know, it was for a while at any rate out there for everybody to see. They did, you know, lock the door once somebody pointed out that it was unlocked. But um, it's frustrating for individual users because here are these third parties that you're not doing any business with at all, uh, scraping public data and building these massive user profiles and then accidentally leaving it open for anybody to see. And you know, you know, there, there've got to be many people out there who enjoy for fun or for profit writing scripts that search around the web looking for these unsecured S3 buckets and Absolutely. seeing what's in them. Yeah, especially given the number of times it's happened over the last couple of months. Uh, my guess is there's probably a little cottage industry of people that are out there just sort of poking at S3 and seeing what they can find. Yeah. yeah. The other part is I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that this company uh, out of Bellevue, um, Bellevue, Washington here, like I said, nearby Seattle, uh, they're not the only ones doing this. They're not the only ones, you know, aggregating and collecting publicly information, you know, publicly available information into ways that we don't understand and in ways that we don't know how they're going to use it. Um, in some ways, it's reminiscent of the Cambridge Analytics thing where they were, you know, given data or contracted with data from or for data from Facebook and then broke that contract by then reselling it or sharing it when they shouldn't have. Uh, but even in cases like this, where there may not be any breach of contract or break in the terms of service, uh, it's amazing what they can do. There's mm -hmm. an amazing amount of data that's out there. Uh, the hard part is that it's all so scattered across. If you've ever tried to actually find somebody, uh, for example, I periodically will try and look up the, uh, uh, the best man at my wedding, who apparently does not spend a lot of time online. And, but there are all these services that will they'll scour all these different data sources. It's all public data. It's all stuff that you and I could all go out and look for manually. But um, they do this as a service. And you know that there's just tons of these companies out there trying to make money by doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've actually played around with S3's you know, developer side. And I'm not currently using it for anything. But um, yeah, I'm familiar with the uh, how easy it is to either accidentally make things too public Right. Um, or the opposite, make something that like looks like it works just fine for you. And then when you release the product, <laughs> nobody else can access it. <laughs> yeah. So, what uh, I have noticed in the, in the S3 interface is that um, they have made some tweaks to make it a little bit more obvious uh, that something is public. Uh, it's not quite um, 100% because there are definitely some sites that I have that are explicitly public and it doesn't have this little green public thing on there. But, um, but I think that they're moving in the right direction. I think the one thing that, like I said, this isn't really Amazon's fault other than making the, the uh, uh, permissions perhaps a little bit too obscure, but um, by making it a little bit more visible uh, by default at least, that should give somebody who's paying attention the information that they need to say, oh, son of a gun, I should probably lock this one down. Yeah, especially if you're using personal, you know, people's personal information. I mean, a lot of a lot of things you develop, it's not particularly using personal information, um, you know, depending upon what the product is. But yeah, people are giving you data. You got to make sure that you use it only as you say you're going to use it. Yep. 
So anyway, I thought that was an interesting, like I said, kind of sort of breach. Um, it's another, another one of those ways that our data gets compromised in ways we didn't even expect. Hmm. Speaking of large amounts of data, I know I have large amounts of data out on Flickr. Yeah. What's going on there, Gary? So you, so, uh, you use Flickr. And I do. I haven't, I haven't used it in a while, but, you know, but the kind of good news is that Flickr is no longer under the massive multiple corporate umbrellas that it used to be. Uh, you know, Flickr started independently, I think it was 2004, and then was bought by Yahoo, and then Yahoo uh, went through a whole series of different things and reorganizations, and finally was bought by Verizon, and, and I think it was a whole complicated thing of like Flickr was owned by some division of Verizon or some division of Yahoo that was then owned by Verizon. Anyway, that's all over as it was just announced that uh, a competitor, SmugMug, uh, has purchased Flickr, and Flickr will once again be out from all of that corporate you know, network there, which is great news for fans of Flickr, um, who I don't think any of them are particularly happy with how things have been going in the last decade. Um, the uh, funny thing is, is that you know, I didn't know that SmugMug is actually older than Flickr. I always thought Flickr was like, one of the first and that's why they were so uh you know they got uh, such a big name in the in the industry but smug mug was actually out two years earlier and th- their deal i've never have either guys ever used smug mug no. no no yeah their deal from what i read is that they don't really have much of a free tier uh it's mostly a pay but then they don't you know kill you with ads and selling your data and doing all sorts of things. So uh, they're more user-friendly um, in terms of how they present themselves. And then, uh, so now they own they own Flickr. So they're going to keep it as a separate service. They'll be, so for the meantime, there'll be two services. There'll be Flickr will still be Flickr and work as before. And SmugMug will still be SmugMug. And then we'll see how things go in the future. Um, it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about you know, photo sharing services in a long time. I, you know, uh, back in that part of the, er, you know, last decade, they were a big thing, you know, that you could upload your photos and then other people could see them and um, you could create these galleries and all of that. I did lots of that. I did some on Flickr and I did some on Google's Picasa and uh, there was some other services as well. And Apple actually went through, it had a couple of different services and they currently have one now. Uh, you know, iCloud I, I photo sharing as uh, their current one. Um, but then Instagram and other social media networks that specialize in photography kind of came up and took over uh, from that. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't talking, know. What was that? Well, I was talking with someone a couple of days ago about yeah. this, and his comment was that he just throws everything up on Google. You know, Google seems to be consuming everything. But his rationale is that Google has a lot of, um, I'll call it AI, but post-processing that they, you know, they'll go out and do facial recognition. They'll, yeah. they'll do all sorts of interesting things to the photos simply by virtue of them existing in your, uh, in your photo library. Yeah, yeah, and that's, uh, I don't know if SmugMug or Flickr do any of that currently. Flickr certainly does not. Uh, Flickr has been stagnant for the majority of the last, I'll say, eight years. Um, So that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm actually, I think this is, could be a good thing. I'm hoping it'll actually 
um, inject a little bit of life into Flickr, and I'm hoping it'll give them some incentive to uh, to do some more leading edge kinds of things. Now, you mentioned that they're, that um, they plan to have both Flickr and Smug Mug as being separate entities, at least for a while. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, this morning, I think, uh, yeah, no, just a couple of hours ago, actually, this afternoon, um, I got an email from uh, Flickr slash Smug Mug, mm-hmm. and it includes, uh, let's see, we think you're going to love Flickr under Smug Mug ownership, but you can choose not to have your Flickr account and data transferred to Smug Mug until May 25th. If you want to keep your Flickr account and data from, from being transferred, you must go to your Flickr account to download the photos and videos you want to keep, then delete your account, yada, yada, yada. Right. So they're giving you a whole month to they're deal giving, with it? They're giving us a month to deal with it, but I also don't know what it means to transfer. Well, um, they, they, had, they have a fact. Ownership, or are they actually doing yeah. something more involved? No, they said, so they have a frequently asked questions page. We'll, we'll include that as one of the links in the show notes. Excellent. And it sounds like they are, you know, they do need to transfer to their system and their servers, but they're not going to, it's still going to be Flickr as a separate service, um, but it will transfer ownership. And I guess legally, you know, the terms of service to which you uploaded your, your Flickr photos will no longer apply. And it, there's a new terms of service and they're going they said something just about having their universal smug mug terms of service, which right. they claim they think is pretty good. And uh, so, um, you know, it's just, that's the proper thing to do. I think is to say, Hey, they're going to be new owners of this. There is going to be new terms of service and you've got time. If you just want to opt out, um, you could do that. Uh, I would imagine going from, you know, my thought is going from Yahoo owned or Verizon owned to, Smug Mug owned is probably the right direction. Uh, and if it's not, I'm sure people will write about it soon, but it sounds like it is. So, but you know, they'd still want to do the proper thing and, and offer that as the, the way out. If you, you right. don't want to go and continue on. Uh, right. I, you know, the, the, the thing I liked most about Flickr for years, and I haven't used it recently for this is I use it as an image search engine because people really good at, you know, putting all the proper tags and descriptions and things up for their photos when they post there. So if you wanted to see a picture of something like, oh, there's this cool building in some city, and I remember seeing it when I was there on vacation, but I didn't get a picture of it, you could search and usually come up with somebody else's picture and say, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's that's what I remember. Um, so it was a great search engine for photos. And there's a lot of uh, stuff like the API for Flickr 2 was really strong, or I guess still is really strong, where you could grab a Flickr, Flickr feed or a search feed from Flickr and use it in a screensaver or you know, as uh, desktop backgrounds or things like that. Um, and you could say, I just want pictures of fish or waterfalls or whatever. And, and you could do that and do it through Flickr. So. Well, I'm hoping it'll be a good thing in the long run. Like I said, it, it reminded me that I'm doing stuff out on Flickr and I'll probably pay more attention to it in the, in the upcoming months. But I think that this is, it's an inflection point and it's either going to inflect up and they're going to succeed or I think this might just be, um, you know, the, the eventual death of Flickr. Um, I think not. I think it'll be successful. But uh, like I said, I think something other than stagnation will happen now. Yeah, yeah I think the odds are good. It'll be, it'll be a positive. So we'll see. So speaking oh. of positives or yeah. negatives, 
<laughs> wow. Don't remove that sticker. Wait. But wait a minute. It's, it reminds me of the uh, uh, mattress tags. Oh, yeah. The you know? illegal to remove illegal tag. To remove the tag. Yeah. Oh, right. They put them on yeah. like sofa cushions and things too. Do not remove this tag. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't see the link. I was going to click on it to cheat and now I just can't find it. So um, the... I, I really, oh man, I really don't see the link and I need help. The, oh. it, uh, it's right there. I got the link. There Where is go. it? Where is it? I don't see it. Yeah. I see Smugbug. I see a blank thing and then I see Reddit. I, I realize, I, is it is it there? Is it? Yeah. He, with my, uh, uh, let's yeah. see. I know. Yeah. It's just not there because I am. Please excuse the technical difficulties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll paste it into the. Yeah, for thank you. Yeah, something's wrong with my Google Doc. Yeah, it's the it's not there. The one thing I need is the one thing. You had one job. <laughs> I had one job to sound informed about this. It was my idea to talk about this, and uh, then I was unable. So this was a peek behind the uh, the TEH curtains. Yes, you could, it was fascinating, wasn't it? You can yeah. you can guess that we actually coordinate some of what we're about to talk about. We try to apparently. But yeah, yeah. Try. That's weird. I've never seen that happen in Google Doc. It's just like there's a line missing. Um, we'll be we'll discussing that next week. And <laughs> without you, without me. <laughs> well, as, well, as, as you're looking into that, Kevin, I I do this did trigger a memory that I haven't thought about in years of mm. being a little kid and cutting off the tag on my mattress oh, no. and then feeling really bad about it <laughs> <laughs> and then confessing to my parents that I had cut it off and, uh, and then having them probably get a good laugh out of it. <laughs> they stopped laughing when? <laughs> t- telling me that it was okay. The police were not going to come. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, in the vein of cutting the tag off of the mattress, uh, if you have ever bought anything, uh, it probably has a sticker on it that says uh, warranty void if the sticker is removed. And the Federal Trade Commission reiterated recently with several manufacturers that those stickers are illegal. You are, people are allowed to open their things and fix them and uh, modify them even, and it's not breaking the law and you're not allowed to uh to say that say differently and well but i mean I so i understand you can definitely open them but the warranty though it's like do they have to because the whole point is that people can go in and say i can fix this and then they screw things up really bad and then they can go and take it in and say here it's under warranty right the, the article here at motherboard says that um uh, if you, for instance, buy a car with a warranty and um, take it to a repair shop to fix it and then have to return the car to the manufacturer, the car company isn't legally allowed to deny the return because you took the car to another shop. The same is true of any consumer device that costs more than $15, although that, that seems like a weird arbitrary uh, yeah. point to me. That, um, that just seems really weird because if I crack it open and I just sort of, you know, blunder around inside of the electronics, it's easy to screw things up and it doesn't seem right, fair, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, they then would be, you know, the, the manufacturer would somehow be responsible for dealing with my screw up. And yet it doesn't seem fair to deny you access to open up what is opening it up. I'm totally okay with, I want to be able to look around inside. Um, but 
if um, if I then damage it, then whose responsibility really should that be? Hmm. I don't know. The FCC, uh, FTC sent letters to six companies. It didn't say which six companies they were. Uh, that they, but they did say the companies are uh, automobiles, cellular devices, video gaming systems in the United States. And uh, they let them know that the FTC made clear that all consumer electronics that cost more than $15 are covered. Provisions that tie warranty coverage to the use of particular products or services harm both consumers who pay for them as well as the small businesses who offer competing products and services, according to the FCC's Bureau of Consumer Production. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, this is uh, worth watching because definitely will change a lot of uh, what happens in the industry now. Yeah. Like, for example, um, the I had a... Uh, we talked about DirecTV a few weeks ago, I think. I had a DirecTV receiver go bad, and I think it was the hard drive going bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I explicitly avoided playing with it. I can, I can change a hard drive, right? I mean, certainly. Sure. But I explicitly avoided doing that because I wanted whatever happens next to happen on their dime. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, had I been able to replace the hard drive, quite possibly with larger, faster, better one, um, which makes me wonder what a direct TV with an SSD and it would behave like, mm-hmm. um, you know, would that, I probably would have given that a shot first. So interesting. I hope it, uh, yeah. it'll be like, like Gary said, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. So earlier, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Now, um, we got news of a, uh, a planet fitness, that was evacuated. And the reason that it was evacuated was because somebody nearby did something. It's actually quite common, uh, not the specifics, but the actual uh, technique. They created their Wi-Fi network and gave it the name or the SSID of remote detonator. <laughs> <laughs> And we've all, you know, we've, I think anybody that's played with Wi-Fi at all has always, you know, toyed around with, you know, having uh, a Wi-Fi hotspot with the name of, um, you know, uh, CDC uh, Mobile Investigation Unit or right. um, um, FBI Surveillance Van. Don't click, you know, don't connect here or free malware or, you know, any of those kinds of things. Right. But this one caught attention because apparently someone at Planet Fitness, uh, not Planet Fitness, the company, but probably one of their uh, clients, uh, apparently tried to connect to Wi-Fi and saw this as a hotspot and freaked out, panicked. I don't know. I don't. I, I. I have a hard time. I have a hard time accepting that somebody would see that and then honestly think that a real remote detonator would be named remote detonator. That just doesn't um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But. Um, Yes, they actually evacuated, and they searched the facility with a bomb-sniffing dog. So, what a waste of resources. Indeed, indeed. But it's another one of those things where, you know, if you were thinking about playing with your Wi-Fi hotspot name, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, it's it's kind of sad that we have to... Uh, um, uh, you know, have have limitations based on what I would consider to be the lowest, least common denominator. But um, there you go. Don't call your hotspot remote detonator and whatever else might 
that somebody else might suddenly misinterpret and uh, um, either take offense to or panic at. Yeah, you know, I always love looking at nearby Wi-Fi network names. Of course. Because it's it's become like an art form <laughs> coming up with creative stuff. And, and the funny thing is, is that in doing so, I have noticed the trend towards just about every Wi-Fi now is password protected, which is great. Yes. Uh, and, it, you know, it used to be that majority were unprotected. And now it's rare that I actually find one that's, un, you know, doesn't have the little pilot next to it, which is great. But then the art of coming up with funny names hasn't died off with that because right. most of the time it was things like don't use my Wi-Fi or, or somebody would say like FBI van number 27 or something like that, you know, <laughs> right. just to prevent people from using it. And now that's not necessary anymore if you use a password, but people still enjoy, you know, knowing that others will see this name, people they right. don't know. They like to come up with funny things to say. Now this so, was probably a bad idea, but, <laughs> but so general, funny. Me, me being who I am, I you know, my, my phone can be a hotspot. I've also got one of those little jetpacks that, uh, that can be a hotspot. Um, I turn it into marketing. Mm. Um, it actually, my, my hotspot SSID is a URL. So if somebody's curious as to what this is, they can go type it into the browser and they'll say, hey, Leo's nearby. Wave, say hello. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea, yeah. Marketing. Yeah. It's all about marketing. <laughs> well, and it, yeah, because it's funny because especially like with iPhone hotspots, most of the people just leave it on the default name. It'll, so it'll be like, you know, Gary's iPhone or something like that. Right. Uh, but you can name it whatever you want. So yeah. you, know, you have and, some fun with it, but just don't use something like remote detonator. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will agree with you. It's funny. I have seen the trend shifting to more and more uh, padlocked or, or, you know, secured um, hotspots. The other thing is many, if not most of the ones that are actually open at the Wi-Fi level are still gateway. Um, they still have some kind of interstitial right. that you either have to log in with, uh, you know, like at most hotels, so you'll have to log in with your room number or something like that. Um, or you at least have to accept the terms of services, although, you know, that's, that's not much of a barrier, but, uh, but yeah, things are getting better. Yeah. I'm looking at my, I live in a pretty dense neighborhood and looking at mine right now, huge list and it's all locked except for the obligatory Xfinity Wi-Fi, yep. which is supposed to be unlocked because it's that old, I, I, I guess not old. I guess they still do it. They service still do. Where yep. Xfinity throws out a free, uh, you know, um, network, but it's not free. It's available only oh, yes. to Infinity slash That's right. customers. But it's so it's, it's uh, using it too. It too has one of these login interstitials where you have to log in before you can actually use the internet. All right. So I don't know which one of my neighbors has that, but uh, but that one's there. So and you know they cause a lot of trouble too because some people, um, they're they have whatever they have their devices and computers configured for to latch on to those. And it will say, hey, this one's got a stronger signal than your actual Wi-Fi. And it latches onto it. And then they can't do anything because they don't, you know, have the credentials to log on to it. Um, so, so I hear it from time to time of people complaining that they, their Mac keeps going to Xfinity Wi-Fi. And they don't even know what that is. They don't even have Xfinity. It's like right. it's, your, it's your neighbor. And you just need to remove that. You added that network at some point accidentally. You need to remove it from your list. So, 
So yeah, I you know I, I also I I warn people too that there's the fake ones, especially if they're open in public, and it's real easy to set up a fake one that can actually steal your your data, um, right. and it's real easy to like for instance set one up at an airport while you're sitting there you know laptop you could set it up and then call it free airport wi-fi mm -hmm. and people are like oh that's the free airport wi-fi and then not realize no the actual free airport wi-fi is called something different um, and you could do the same thing with any coffee shop just use the name of the coffee shop and all that so that's another reason it's dangerous to hook up to public wi-fi networks is it could be not the one you think it is one of the things that i i wrote an article about this years ago as we all know, open Wi-Fi, insecure, almost by definition. And that's what a lot of these fake access points are counting on, that you'll just connect to them because they've got the right name. Every open Wi-Fi hotspot could become secure, even if all they did was put the password, the WPA2 password, um, on a chalkboard yep. inside of their establishment. Yep. Um, it's available for everybody. Uh, who's in the establishment, uh, obviously they can change it at will, uh, but it then completely sidesteps, you know, a majority of the issues associated with open Wi-Fi, not the least of which is being able to access it from nearby when you actually haven't stepped inside to see what the password is. And it prevents um, duplicates in the sense that if you're in the coffee shop and you see that there's a password required and you can connect directly without the password, then something might right. be what it claims to be. And if they're and if you're somebody that does that, you know that sets that up. Make sure you do put the exact name of the the Wi-Fi router, you know, up there. So if it's Joe's Coffee Shop, you know, yes. spell it out with the capital letters and everything exactly as the name of the router is, yep. and then put the password. And then someone like me can make sure I match the name and the password before I actually use that Wi-Fi. Certainly not going to be bulletproof, but. Uh, definitely a long way. And it's so easy to do. I'm, I mean, I understand that, you know, like my local Starbucks, they don't want to do tech support for their Wi-Fi hotspot. They just don't. So they, um, they have to take the easiest possible route, and that's just to leave it open. And they let, in my case, um, Google supplies the, uh, the connectivity here. So, you know, Google then provides an interstitial that you agree to terms of service on. And I think they just changed it so that you end up um, – signing up for a Starbucks mailing list in order to get the free Wi-Fi, which is fine. I mean, that's an exchange of value. But, um, you know, it's not something that the barista is expected to have to try and troubleshoot. If it doesn't work, it's on you. Yeah. Excellent. So what's coming up this week, guys? Boy. I don't know. I already talked about that. I'm <laughs> supposed uh, to think about this before. I don't. I didn't know there was going to be homework. Uh, I, I'm headed out of town with uh, with my wife, like I said, going out Friday. Going to see some uh, see some shows, and uh, that's going to be awesome. Other than that, uh, just just the usual. Yeah, I uh, not much going on here. See, uh, for like books, I'm reading. I'm reading the famed Baroque series. Uh, from uh, Neil Stevenson, just like an eight book, huge series of historical fiction <laughs> um, would be impossible to get through if he wasn't such a good writer. Uh, so that's good stuff for geeky stuff to read and getting ready for the backpacking season, which is starting pretty soon here and which I use a lot of technology. So like I just bought a new uh, 
uh, you know, a battery, uh, external battery for my iPhone. Cause I use my iPhone to, as my map and GPS tracker while hiking. So it's important to have more power than the, the battery normally carries. And now there's a series of these great, they, they look just like flashlights, but they have a USB port on the bottom and you can either just use them as flashlights or you, if you want to draw power from them, you can uh, plug your phone into it and it's uh, basically a, an iPhone's worth of power inside the flashlight. So that's pretty cool. I like the fact that the, you know, energy is getting a little bit more transportable, you know, use it here, but transfer it over to this device and all that. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, can't wait to, to test that out in the field and see how that, that battery works. One of the uh, things that I definitely run into when I travel, as I did last week, is the uh, when you're using, like in my case, my Google Pixel phone, it's a Pixel 1, um, I will use it for navigation um, all the time. And mm-hmm. it's awesome. I, 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 you know, it's been like a decade since I've been to the LA area and it just got me everywhere I needed to go. Um, and not on top, on top of that, it's time estimates were like exact. If I, if it said it was going to take me 25 minutes to get somewhere, it took me 25 minutes to get somewhere. Um, but the problem is that, uh, even when my phone is plugged into the, uh, a USB port in the rental car, Mm-hmm. Uh, the combination of leaving the screen on, doing the navigation continuously is actually still draining the battery faster right. than it's being charged. So I actually do carry with me, uh, whenever I travel, I've got in my pocket um, a relatively small, it's not round, it's square, um, little portable battery with the USB connector on it so that I can you know, recharge my phone or run my phone off of it or whatever if need be. Um, when I tra- traveling is the only time I ever seem to need it and USB charging ports are becoming more ubiquitous there, you know, they were on the airplane and so forth. But even then um, it's never, it's never enough. You can never have enough power apparently. Right. And you know, it's interesting because typically you would think that it would be impossible to use a phone to use, you know, as your map and GPS while hiking because it's going to drain the battery really fast. But what I've learned is there's a, really low power mode you, you can go into. Um, I'm sure it's the same on Android, but with the iPhones, so several generations of the iPhones, you, you can turn on the airplane mode, basically right. cut out all the stuff off, and it will still receive the raw GPS uh, if the app is requesting it. And so that's not using Wi-Fi uh, signals. It's not using cell towers. It's using the raw GPS, which is fine because you're outdoors anyway when you're hiking. So you get a pretty strong GPS signal from the satellites. And um, uh, if you don't have the screen on all the time, because of course most of the time it's my pocket, I just, you know, every half hour or so take it out and see where I am on the map. Uh, I can get incredible battery life uh, while it's tracking pretty much every move I make on the trail. Um, and I've, in the past, I've basically used half my battery for a full day of moving around outside. Um, and, and, he, and I get not only a really accurate representation on a, uh, on a really good map of where I am and how close I'm getting to wherever I'm headed, but, uh, when I'm done, I have all that data and I can look at my data and see, here's the route on the map and here's an altitude map too, you know? So I can see, oh yeah, no wonder day two was tough because I was going uphill the whole time and all that. Right. 
and it's great. And, and then when I actually compile, I take lots of photos, um, of course, on these trips. And when I put everything together, I usually take some really high resolution screenshots of the whole trail. And then I save all the data with all of the uh, photos and everything. So I can see exactly where I went and everything on each hike. And then if I return to, uh, later to go on that same hike, I actually have little notes on the map because I'll, I'll, it'll mark when I stop and I'll mark it when I camp or when I find a good water source or something like that. Um, and it's great for going back to that location. Or, and there are sites online you can share that stuff too. So you can share your route with photos and all the GPS data. And then uh, someone else can get the benefit of all that uh, knowledge of that trail. That is very cool. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. It's, I'll share have, more when I get when I do my first backpacking trip. I'll maybe I'll share more about how I, what app I use and and what type of data I collect. Uh, yeah, that would be very cool to to see just what the details are. It's funny because I actually do use um, various location tracking services for a variety of reasons, but the one that uh, was coming to mind right now, we have a mutual friend who is uh, currently in the north of Spain uh, doing a a walking tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has Google Maps location turned on, and she has shared it with a few individuals, um, myself being one of them. So it's kind of interesting where, you know, granted, there's a time zone difference, but whenever I fire up Google Maps, if I want to, I can go see, okay, where is she today? How far did she go? How's she doing? Those kinds of things. I have the same thing with my cousin, uh, my cousin in Holland. She, uh, she has it enabled, and I can see where she's at all the time. Um, and uh, it's just my wife uses it to stalk me whenever I'm out and about. <laughs> I've got it enabled so that she can see where I'm at. And uh, so she doesn't have to ask me when I'm coming home. She can see the little icon moving on the road. This is all Google Maps location sharing for those who might be interested in diving into it a little bit deeper. You do need to have Google Maps turned on on your phone and have the service enabled and give individuals permission and so forth. And you get a monthly or bi-monthly reminder that you're sharing your location just in case you forget. But uh, I find it a very, very handy thing. It wouldn't work for you, Gary, because it does require, you know, internet connectivity during. Mm. Um, so it's more of a real-time location service uh, or approximating real-time. But it's still uh, pretty handy in some interesting ways. Yeah, that is one of the things going on these trips is that I, I usually am com- completely out of range of any kind of signal. Um, but it's kind of random. You know, there's been times when I've looked at the map and said, boy, I'm going to be completely off the grid and that I have, you know, 4G or something the entire way. Yeah. I'm like, where are these towers? And then there's been times where I'm like, hey, this should be too bad. I, the the AT&T coverage map shows green here and uh, there's some, you know, populated areas nearby and I have nothing, no signal at all the entire time. So it's really, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's tough to, to figure out, especially, you know, when you have family and you want to tell them like, oh, I'll be checking in. Sure. Here and here. And it's like, well, I don't know. I may be checking in all the time and sending you cool photos and, or you may not hear from me for several days completely. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's there are some interesting solutions for that, that uh, search and rescue people use. Uh, it's the moral equivalent of a sat phone that yeah. um, they carry with them, but they don't use it for phone calls necessarily. It's got GPS enabled and it um, uh, can send texts. What I'd love to see is uh, a system, and this would be so hard to implement, but, you know, you you come across other people all the time, even on the most remote trails. Um, 
you know, you'll, you'll typically run into other people going the other direction always because if they're going the same direction as you, you probably never see them. They're always a few miles behind you or in front of you the entire time. But, uh, people coming the other direction or crossing, you know, when there's multiple paths crossing your path or whatever the, uh, and they have their, you know, a lot of times they have their phones and they're using GPS on them as well and all. And it would just be so cool if there was some system where you, you, your phone could talk to their phone and then they get into civilization later that day while you're still like two days out and their phone then sends a message off saying, you know, that you were here at this location at this time and your status was good or whatever. Right. You know, and then everybody crisscrossing these paths in these national parks and, and state wilderness areas and things like that kind of had this network uh, just to, so people, you know, knew where people were and that things well, were good. And, you know, in a few years, that'll be moot anyway. Cause yes. Elon will have given us planet wide internet on there on the, thousands of low orbiting satellites. So Gary, are, are you familiar with an app called fire chat? Fire chat. No, uh, it, it's something I played with a few years ago on the Joko cruise. Um, it uses uh, wireless mesh networking to enable smartphones to pass messages via Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and, and whatever else. And literally like if, if, uh, if I want to send a message to Leo, I could basically send you know, a DM to, to Leo, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not connected to any Wi-Fi, uh, but I have Bluetooth on. And then, but as I'm walking by you, you also have fire chat on your phone. Our phones will do a little handshaking and you will can take the message on your phone, you know, automatically invisibly. And then you're carrying this message. And then later on, you know, the next day you pass Leo and then it passes the message onto him. And this has happened without any Wi-Fi, without any cellular, just over interesting Bluetooth message passing. Yeah, I see the website for it now. I'll make sure it gets included in the uh, show notes. Um, that's got basically the kind of system I'm talking about. Uh, be nice if it was automatic. Well, I mean, this is automatic. You have to have the app yeah. on your phone. Well, no, I, I don't it? mean automatic. I mean, obviously, you would have to have the app. But even just where you could... You know, uh, like if you were using a GPS software, and there's a, only a few main ones that it would automatically connect if if you give it permission to um, to somebody that was hiking nearby if it saw that other device or whatever, mm-hmm. and just pass on you know whatever your you know you could have some queued messages or something. I don't know, maybe it does do that. I have to look into. Uh, yeah, the other thing that would be interesting to know is whether or not it's a, it's able to pass messages past or beyond its net. In other words, you know, if you've got half a dozen people that are running the program, can they are they the only half a dozen people that can exchange messages, or can you get one to um, someone else somewhere else? Yeah, I, I believe, and again, my information—I haven't used this in a couple of years. If any one of those people manages to get onto internet, then those messages are released into the the cloud, so that other fire chat users elsewhere in the world can, can access them. Very cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's, that sounds like, uh, so uh, I'll have to read more about it, but I think the ideal thing would be to build that into an API where then um, people that you, you know, use other apps like this GPS tracker app that I use have that kind of built into it. The, you know, uh, it sounds like the name of the name of the, uh, thing there is open garden is what it's called that mm-hmm. the fire chat is using and then um 
and yeah, it'd be cool. But yeah, once we have uh, SpaceX's uh, network, then I could uh, send messages and post photos and FaceTime. FaceTime right in the middle of. <laughs> that means I'm probably gonna have to bring an even bigger battery battery pack <laughs> with me <laughs> during the uh, during the trip. Well, we don't know though. It, you know this uh, satellite network. I assume you're going to need some equipment to be able to hook up to it. I don't think it's going to go directly to the phone, right? I don't know. So don't know. you know you'd need a little receiver on your roof or whatever to get maybe, the satellite signal. So I, I assume really good Wi-Fi. Who knows? Yeah, really, really good. Yeah, just one Wi-Fi network. It'll just be the all-encompassing single Wi-Fi network with 6.2 billion users. And the SSID will be Skynet. Skynet. <laughs> and then, and then you know how now when you see, uh, at least for Mac users, it's pretty common to see shared drives show up on your um, on your sidebar and the finder. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So it'll be, uh, you know, you hook up to that, <laughs> and it'll be like. Three billion share drives just show up and fill your sidebar <laughs> find people that haven't secured their their file sharing. <laughs> oh Lord! Yeah. No, that'll All be right. the breach of some future week. Yeah, no <laughs> yes. kidding. Breach the massive year. breach of the week. <laughs> yeah. so, well, as for me, I've just got uh, lots of of writing to do. As I mentioned elsewhere, I'm going to be traveling again, not this week, but next week. And what that means, uh, given what I do, is. I'm just going to be heads down answering questions, writing articles, and getting that stuff queued so that even though I'm not here, it'll look like I'm here next week. Um, and actually, I will be here for next week's podcast, or at least that's the plan, so I'll spill more of the beans about where I'm going. It's going to be kind of a fun trip. Anything else before you wrap up, guys? No. Nope. nope. Okay. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh21. We're also on Twitter at the teh podcast, and you can find us at facebook.com slash the teh podcast. Thanks as always for listening. Hope to hear you see you again next week or speak to you again next week. Uh, have a good one. Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.